is Christianity a set of rules or a relationship with God? Now, if we're familiar this morning with real Christianity, I'm sure we'll jump at the answer, it's a relationship uh, with God. But, I don't know if you've ever wondered, for a relationship, there does sometimes seem to be a lot of rules. When people look into Christianity, it's one of the things that they note. We talk about a relationship, but actually, when they look into the Bible, they see actually there are quite a lot of rules there. It's one of the things that strikes them. We say we have a relationship, but then we're faced like a passage with a passage like the one we have this morning in uh, Hebrews 13, which seems to be a sort of list uh, of commands. Well, we saw last time, didn't we? We had it read to us that we've not come to Mount Sinai with its terrifying commands. Instead, we've come to glorious Mount Zion. Uh, this morning, as I said before, we, as we gather here on earth, we gather in heaven. It's not something that's future to come. It's something that we experience now as we gather on earth with innumerable angels celebrating. But then we read a passage like this, and it, it sort of seems more about earth than about heaven, doesn't it? Is this a, a sort of return of Sinai? Is this sort of Sinai through the back door? Really, uh, is it just sort of bringing in rules on top of relationship? Well, I want to argue this morning that what we really have here is not a list of rules, but really one rule. The imperative of the gospel, the kingdom command, you got your pens ready? It's love. Love, L-O-V-E, if you want to know how to spell it. And if you think about it, that's what this whole chapter is we're going to look at it is about. It's about how we are to love. So if you remember when I showed you the structure of Hebrews months ago, chapter 11 was about faith, that great uh, list of people who had faith. Chapter 12 has been about hope. And now we have chapter 13 about love. And love is the character of the inhabitants of Zion. This is the response of overflowing thankfulness to God. This is what acceptable worship, as we had read before, really looks like. It's not saying, do this and you'll make it to Zion. It's saying, now that you've come to Mount Zion, behave like it. Behave like a citizen of Zion. And what is it that characterises the city of God? Love. Because after all, God is love. So in terms of how Christians live, the Beatles sort of had it right. In one sense, all you need is love. Love fulfills and sums up all the Old Testament laws. Jesus says so in Mark 12. Love God, love your neighbour, they're the greatest commands. Paul says it in Romans 13. You've got it on the back of your notice sheets. I'll just read you the last verse. Love does no wrong to a neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Or Galatians 5.14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. So Jesus says it, Paul says it. And John says it as well, 1 John 3, uh, 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded. So if we're acting in line with love, we're acting in line with the law. The problem is that so often we misunderstand what real love actually is. Thankful love, gospel love, kingdom love has a shape to it. It's moulded by the gospel, by the kingdom, by the character of Christ himself, who after all is king of the kingdom. 
Now, Paul, in his letters, he shows us what love, the shape of love in 1 Corinthians 13. But the author of Hebrews shows us the shape of love in Hebrews 13. So as Christians, we must love. It is the supreme gospel commandment to believers. But what does real gospel love look like? We've got four points this morning. This is the first. Real love is love for brother and stranger alike. Have a look at verses 1 and 2 again. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. So first we see their love for brother. That's what that uh, phrase means, brotherly love. Philadelphia, not the cheese, uh, not the city, but love for brother. And it's brother and sister. Uh, It's worth saying both ideas are included in that word. But what we're told here is that brotherly love is to continue. Now the word there literally means to persevere. Which if you think about it, it's been what the last two chapters have been all about, keeping going. I feel like actually as a church we understand brotherly love quite well. The way we're to treat one another as brothers and sisters. It's a great joy to see people caring for one another. What he's saying here is that we're to persevere in that. That's the hard bit. Keeping it going. It's easy in short bursts, isn't it, to show love to our brothers and sisters. The odd act of kindness. But our Christian life is a marathon run, isn't it? And so our love is a marathon run, if you like. We're to keep loving one another. We're to keep caring for one another. And that's quite hard, isn't it? But we're to keep going more and more, as Paul uh, writes to the Thessalonians. We're to love one another as brother and sister. What we're less familiar, I think, with is that other part of the the, the section here. Love for stranger. You see, verse 1 and 2 are parallel. Like I said, it's Philadelphia in verse 1. And then it's this word philoxenia in verse 2. So the same sort of word, Philadelphia and philoxenia. That's what's translated there as hospitality to strangers. If Philadelphia means love for your brother then philoxenia means love for the stranger, for the outsider, for the foreigner. It's where we get our word xenophobia from. You know, fear of of strangers, fear of foreigners. Instead of fear of them, we're to love them. Now, in the ancient world, that did mean opening up your houses. Uh, In the ancient world, uh, this sort of functioned a bit like, your home functioned a bit like an Airbnb. I don't know if you've come across that, you know, to sort of open up a room in your house and uh, people come in. It was like a free Airbnb. It was a virtue in the old world to welcome travellers and strangers into your home. You were supposed to give them a warm welcome. And there were lots of examples in the Old Testament where people did this. We'll come to that in a minute. But it was seen as one of the highest virtues, welcoming people into your home. Opening your home was seen as something that was really, you know, good of the highest order. It's a little bit strange, isn't it, in a way this has dropped off our radar a bit in the West. We tend not to think like that, don't we? In England, we say things like, you know, an Englishman's home is his castle. And the idea is you build up walls around it and you stop people coming in. Whereas the Bible's thought is more that the Christian's home is his hostel rather than his castle. Sort of welcoming people in. So opening our homes to others is what's meant by this phrase. This seems to be what it is meaning. But I wonder if you think, if this is the love and the care we're to show to strangers, opening our home, welcome, generously welcoming them in, 
How much more should we be doing this with our brothers and sisters? So I've heard it argued, well, this here means uh, having uh, strangers just come and visit your home, which doesn't really work in our society now. But surely welcoming our brothers and sisters into our home is still a possibility. I've also heard people say, well, this doesn't mean just having people round for a meal. But surely that's the bare minimum, isn't it? That's the bare least if it's to mean welcome strangers into your home. Well, if you're to feed strangers, will you not feed your friends? Or is it that you welcome in strangers and then when actually you get to know them and they become your friends, you turf them out and you never invite them round again? You know what I mean? Don't darken my doors again, you're now my friend, not a stranger. If you think about it, once all of us were strangers to each other, weren't we? Some of us here probably still are strangers to each other. Well, real love means opening your home and your life and your diary to all. And if you're thinking, ouch, well, yes, ouch. This is why later on this chapter, this loving behaviour is called sacrifice. I don't want to lessen the blow too much here. It sounds a bit too much, doesn't it? But too much for the Lord who welcomed us by shedding his own blood on the cross. There's been a book written recently called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. I think it's one of those books that if if you sort of read the title... You've basically got the book. Uh, But it's about a woman who started to open up her home to neighbours in her street. And what happened? Now, I'm not proposing that we give each other a set of house keys for our homes. But if we want to be serious about loving in this way, we should be having people, uh, at least in our homes, shouldn't we? It's more than having people round, true. And it will look different depending on circumstances. But in the end, all you actually need to do hospitality, here you go, this is for Yorkshire, right? All you need to do hospitality, you need one of these, that tea bag, and a mug, okay? That's all you really need in our part of the world to do hospitality, just have someone round for a drink. If you don't have a tea bag, you're very welcome to take one from the back, that's absolutely fine. And if you don't have a mug, well, you can ask them to bring their own, can't you? That's fine. Uh, But in the end, that's all you need, isn't it? Just to invite someone round. Just to have a chat, just to open up your home. You just need a tea bag. Some people here drink just water. So you just need a tap. Uh, So it's fine. But we should really be considering hospitality. It's one of the the things that we're actually told here as an expression of love. But why are we told to do it? Well, because you never know the blessing that you might find. Have a look at the end of uh, verse uh, 2 again. For... Thereby, some have entertained angels unaware. It's a reference there to Abraham and Lot. Abraham, in Genesis 18, entertains three angels, one seemingly the Lord himself. And Lot, in chapter 19, has angels around his home when he's living in Sodom. The angels actually rescue Lot and his daughters by warning them of the impending danger. And eventually, they physically drag him out of the city. And I think what we're to understand here is that they're actually an amazing blessing to have round. I don't think it's that we're to expect angelic visitors as we open up our homes, as though one of us sitting here is secretly an angel. I don't think that's what it's saying. But who knows, as you open your home to people who come and visit, you never know, do you? What's more likely, though, I think, is that the idea that we'll be blessed by those who enter our doors. Perhaps more than we bless them. I mean, if you think about it, why would you want to entertain an angel anyway? So you could have, like, one of those blue packs 
fitted on your door, you know, on the wall. So the angel came here, you know, John Wesley once stayed here, the angel once came here. It's not that, is it? Um, so you could have an amusing, an amusing anecdote to tell your friends. Oh, do you remember that time an angel came by? But it says that you wouldn't know. Is it so that you can boast about it? Surely not. That's one of the things the gospel excludes, isn't it? You wouldn't want to entertain an angel for boasting, but for blessing. The amazing thing is that as we open our homes to others and our lives to others, we get more out of it than we could ever have imagined. There was a lovely uh, couple when I was at uh, Lancaster University who every week they would have students, various people, whoever was speaking that week, if they were visiting speaking, they'd have them around their home. And sometimes we would go and there'd be 15 people around their table. It's all packed in. You had exactly the same meal every time. It was chicken. Uh, really lovely. But they would just welcome everybody into their home every Sunday. And I remember asking them one time, you know, why, why do you do it? It must be so much work uh, doing all that, that food and having the people round. And, and they said, you know what? We have been so blessed by the people who've come through our doors. More blessed than we can imagine. We've had some amazing godly people that our children have got to know, that we've got to know. And actually, by opening our home, we've got far much more from them than they ever got from us. We gave them food, but they gave us so much more. So if you want to do hospitality, get yourself a tea bag, uh, get yourself a mug. Um, how could you start this morning? Who could you use your tea bag for this morning and invite round? Who could go from being a stranger to being a friend this morning? So real love is for brother and for stranger alike. And then secondly, love, real love, is love for the oppressed and downtrodden. Have a look at verse 3. Remember those who are in prison, as though uh, in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. What we're talking about here is love for the oppressed and for the downtrodden. They're to remember those in prison, to show compassion to them. It's not just saying remember them, as though they're going to forget them. It's about showing compassion to them. Fraternising with prisoners in those days could be a dangerous thing. Uh, it still is today. I don't know if you uh, saw in the news this week about the police talking about the Manchester bombings. They said that they'd actually got it on record that the person who'd done the Manchester bombings had been to visit a terrorist in prison. And they take notes of everybody who goes and visits certain people in prison to check that they might not be one of them themselves. And if you imagine, in those days, it was probably similar. To visit prisoners was to mark yourself out as one of them. In a culture where they were getting increasingly persecuted, visiting prisoners could probably get you thrown in prison yourself. Now, prisons today might sound awful. There's always reports every week, aren't there, of all the terrible things that are happening in prison. But prisons in those days were even worse. You were expected to provide your own food. So if nobody brought you food, you would starve. You were expected to provide your own clothing. So none of the sort of stripy things that you sort of imagine prisoners wearing. If you didn't have enough clothes, if they got dirty, you'd just have to continue wearing them. And on top of that, you wouldn't just go to prison for criminal acts. You could be put in there because you had bad debts. You could be put in there for holding an unapproved religion in the land uh, where you lived. Uh, there's all sorts of things. You just fall out with a governor and he could throw you in prison. And prison wasn't the punishment itself. Actually, in prison, you were waiting for trial or you were waiting for execution. That's why you'd uh, be there. So prison was not a nice place. And it was often people who'd been oppressed uh, that were put there. 
Um, and the people who are to go there, well, uh, they're not to just remember people in prison, they're also to remember people who have been mistreated as well. Do you see that there in the second half of the verse? Um, and also those who are mistreated, since uh, you also are in the body. Perhaps these people aren't in prison, but they might have been denied justice. Uh, perhaps they had their confiscate, uh, property confiscated, just like we know that the Hebrews had. No one to speak up for them. No one to care and sympathise with them. Being in prison or being mistreated meant you were at the bottom of society. And the author tells them to remember them. Why? Well, because they too had been victims of oppression by the authorities. In Hebrews 10, verses 32 to 34, this is what the author writes. But recall the former days when you, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Actually, as they remember people in prison, as they remember people who are downtrodden, they too had been badly treated too. They had had things stolen from them and denied justice. And perhaps one day, in the not-too-distant future, they could end up in prison as well. But let's not wait until we're oppressed to care about the oppressed. In our society, we're not in a situation where we're, we're so much at risk of being thrown in prison. But if someone is denied free speech, let's stand up for them, even if we disagree with what they're saying. Because partly it could be us next. If someone is unfairly imprisoned, let's stand up for them. Because it could actually be us next. But not only for that, but because they're fellow human beings in the image of God. That's what it really means by there by saying, you also are in the body. It's not referring there to the church. The author of Hebrews doesn't use that image of the church as a body. It's saying you're in a body too. You could be them. You could be mistreated. You could be thrown in prison. So care for them as fellow human beings. Love them. Real love for people is, is to be shown to people that society has no real love for. Is that what our love looks like? Or do we just love those who love us back? Do we just love the people that are easy to love? Or do we love the oppressed and downtrodden? Those who don't have a voice? Real love is love for the oppressed and downtrodden. And then thirdly, real love is committed love. Have a look at verse 4. Let marriage be held in honour among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Here we're sort of moving into the realm of romantic uh, love. And here we're to see that we're to honour marriage. And in the realm of romantic love, real love looks like marriage. Uh, to paraphrase Beyonce, if you're a Beyonce fan out there, um, if you like it, then you should put a ring on it. That's basically the teaching uh, that we've got here. But it's not just a command to those who are in love. It's actually a command to all, isn't it? So it says, let marriage be held in honour among all. So all are to honour marriage, whether you're married or not. So let me first say what this does not mean. It doesn't mean that we're to idolise marriage. Marriage is not the answer to your every need. 
In fact, marriage is very hard. If you think about it, marriage is two sinners binding themselves to each other. That's, that's hard, isn't it? Um, 42% of marriages in the UK end in divorce. And in one sense, if you think about the difficulties that married couples face, it's amazing in one sense that it's not higher. Marriage asks a man to sacrifice his comfort and his rights for his wife. Marriage asks a woman to submit her rights to her husband. And if you think about it that way, how on earth do not more marriages break down when it is so contrary to our nature? And something so countercultural in a culture that says we must demand our rights for our, and live for ourselves. So actually marriage is hard. Married couples need support and prayer. So often when we talk about these things, we end up talking about single people and how hard it is to be single. And it's right that we do remember those who are unmarried. Um, It's hard to be single, but it's also hard to be married. And if a marriage breaks down, often there is so much more at stake. So marriage is to be held in honour by all. Elsewhere, honour is translated precious or valuable. It's like a jewel or a gemstone. We're to treat it with care, like something fragile and precious. We're to love and care for our married couples, alongside our singles as well. See, married couples, married people are not sort of people who graduated from being single and are now sorted. Yeah? They're sinners in need of help and prayer. They swapped one burden, the burden of singleness, for another burden. Paul speaks of of singleness as a freedom. Uh, I don't think I really understood that until I got married. Um, Don't tell you that wrong. But really, we've just swapped one burden for another, haven't we? So do we pray for one another's marriages as a church? Do we pray for what is very difficult? Do you ask questions of one another about how things are going in those areas? Do you know, for the first six months I was married, it seemed like every conversation I had, how's married life? How's it going? And then after six months... Nobody asks, do they? I don't know if you found the same thing. Actually, not nobody. People rarely ask. Somebody asked me at the conference I was at last week, how's your marriage? Uh, so it is, it is acceptable to ask those sorts of questions. It took me a bit by surprise. But it's okay to talk about those things. Maybe don't you know, announce it from the front. But it's, it's okay to talk about those things. We need to support and celebrate our married couples. Appropriately, knowing that it's very hard for some in those areas... But perhaps this is something we could do more as a church, supporting our married couples. So it's an honour marriage. The second thing we're to do within that is to keep it clean. It literally is saying there, keep your bed clean. The word there translated marriage bed, so I'll read that again. So let the marriage bed be undefiled. The the word marriage bed there is really just the word bed. Um, But like our English word bed, it can be used the idea to bed someone Uh, Elsewhere in the New Testament, it's used to conceive. So there's no need to be coy. It's really talking about sex. That's what it's talking about. And what it's saying here is that the bed is to be undefiled. In Hebrews 7, that same word is used as unstained, clean. It's asking here, is your bed clean? What does that mean? Well, it's not saying literally. Uh, When I went went to university, uh, I didn't really understand the idea you're supposed to wash your bed covers. Um, it's just something that had never happened. It was miraculously changed. And I think for about the first six months, I think I had the same bed covers, so my bed really wasn't uh, clean. 
don't tell other people that story, but I hope you remember it. It's not saying literally is your bed clean. What it means, it means lots of sex for married couples, for your husband, for your wife, and only with your husband or your wife. Now again, at different stages in life, that might look different. But whatever that looks like for you, as a married couple, it means lots of sex between husband and wife. That is a pure marriage bed. People wrongly see get the impression that the Bible is anti-sex. The Bible is not anti-sex. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians. You've got it on the back of your sheets. 1 Corinthians 7, 3 to 5. This is what the Bible says about sex. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. It's talking about sex. And likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, and then come back together again, so that Satan may not tempt you, because of your lack of self-control. What it's saying there is married couples, if we're married couples here this morning, is that we're not to deprive our husband or wife of their conjugal rights. That is sex. Paul only allows people to do that by mutual agreement and only for a short time to not have uh, lots of sex. Why? Because he wants to protect them from temptation. That's what he says there. Temptation to what? Well, I think we're to imagine it's temptation to adultery. You see, sex is given to married couples to stop them from falling into adultery. If you're having lots of sex with your wife, Or your husband, you'll be less tempted to go elsewhere. That does not mean if your wife or husband is depriving you that you have an excuse. There is never an excuse for that. What uh, what you need to do is sit down and talk about this, however hard that might be. I know that sometimes it's a taboo subject, even within marriage. But sex here is only given to be enjoyed within the confines of marriage, as the Bible defines it. You see, sex is like God-given glue that sticks married couples together. Uh, It's the one thing, if you think about it, that married couples do with each other that they don't do with anybody else. It binds them and bonds them together. Now, the problem comes when we take that glue out of the safety and security of marriage. Superglue, where it should be, is amazing, isn't it? Superglue can stick all sorts of things together. But superglue where it shouldn't be can cause a real mess, can't it? And I'm sure we've seen that in the lives uh, of our friends, of lives of people that we know. I've seen it. Friends who have stuck themselves to men only to be torn off a day or a week or a year later. Friends who are genuinely looking for love but have done that to themselves again and again and again. Desperately seeking love but finding only the pain of that bond being ripped apart. Looking to be whole, but ending up being broken. I've seen friends who've stuck themselves somewhere else, while already being stuck to their wife or husband. Finding that actually everything is torn apart by that, by the end. See, society tells us that sex equals love. And sometimes, actually, though, sex can be the least loving thing we can do. It tears us apart inside. It tears others apart It can even tear whole fellowships and churches apart. So why are we not to engage in that? Well, it seems obvious, doesn't it? 
Second half of verse 4. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulteress. Remember last time in Hebrews we said that the judges at the party, that great gathering. Would you carry on as you were before in front of the judge? Would you continue to commit the crimes for which the judge has acquitted you? That the judges there gives us great confidence of our not guilty verdict, doesn't it? But if we think that that means that we're free to carry on as before, then we're tragically mistaken. God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterer. The sexually immoral, that's those who engage in sexual behaviour before marriage. The adulterer, those who engage in illicit sexual behaviour after they're married. And let's not get all Bill Clinton on this. You know, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. When in fact that relationship was very sexual, wasn't it? Even if the act itself was not committed. We're to flee a million miles away from this. Not even a hint, we're told, in the Bible of this is to be among us. Not in our beds, not in our heads, not in our screens, not in our sheets. But this is an area that we all find so hard, isn't it? We live in a society that's so messed up about this. Most of us this morning, if not all of us, will have failed somehow in this area. What do we do if we're messing up here? We repent of it, we cast it aside, and we press on. That's what we're told in Hebrews 12 verse 1, isn't it? Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and every sin that clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Or as Paul says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining towards what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We repent of it, we cast it aside and we press on. Don't let the guilt of it drag you back. The blood of Jesus is a powerful thing. It can cover even the most heinous of sins. So we press on, we repent of it, we cast it aside and we press on. And then finally... Real love is not the love of money. Verses 5 and 6. I'll read that to you again. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? It's not saying there that we're a kingdom without cash. It's saying it's a kingdom without the love of cash. And they're two different, very, uh, two very different things, aren't they? Money in itself is not evil. But if it's money that we're after in this life, then we're in trouble. Now, do remember that this is written to Christians. You see, we can point the finger outside, can't we? Especially at Christmas time. So look at them all chasing after money and, and presents and gifts and being so commercialised. But actually, it's saying here that it's even possible for Christians to fall in love with money. They didn't used to be, did they? They gave up their property we read last time, willingly, joyfully. They used to be looking for a better possession, the city that was to come. But perhaps now these Hebrews are becoming more concerned with the city here on earth. Less concerned with treasures in heaven and more concerned with treasures on earth. I wonder how these Hebrews would take their property being taken at this point in the story. I wonder how we would take to it if that became the situation in the UK. We're to keep our lives free of the love of money. But keeping clear of cash cannot cut it, 
Keeping clear of cash cannot cut it because we need contentment. That's what he talks about here. What's the secret to contentment? Well, it's understanding what you already have. He tells them here to have no fear because God is with them. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. Uh, Sorry, end of verse 5. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Brothers and sisters, money will come and go. Bank accounts will go up and down. But God will never leave you. Friends may abandon you or betray you, but God will never forsake you. Because Christ was forsaken for you. So we have no need to to fear. We have God. And we're not going to lose him. They have nothing to fear. God is with them. If God is for them, who can be against them? What have we to fear from man, he says there. The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? What have we to fear from man when God is on our side? If we have God, then we have everything we need. We've no need to chase after what the world chases after. We have already the greatest treasure in the world. Can we not be content with that? If we truly love God with all our hearts, minds, souls and strength then we won't have space for anything else. We'll be content because we already have what our heart desires. So, brothers and sisters, God has made you part of a kingdom. That's what we found out last time, wasn't it? An unshakable kingdom. Here we see what that kingdom is like. A kingdom of care. As we love one another, as we show hospitality. A kingdom of compassion. As we love the downtrodden and the oppressed. A kingdom of commitment as we honour marriage. And a kingdom of contentment as we're content with what we have. I'm quite tempted to write that above our doors. Here is a kingdom of care, compassion, commitment and contentment. Because that is what will abide in that unshakable kingdom. That is what will last. And if that is what our kingdom is like, then surely that's what we should be like too. As a fellowship, as a gathering. A kingdom of care, compassion, commitment and contentment. Or in other words, a kingdom of love. That's really the other way to sum that up, isn't it? Ruled by a king of love, the Lord Jesus. Who showed care and compassion and commitment and contentment all the way through his life. So let's pray that as we carry on in our marathon race of faith. Let's pray that we might lift our eyes to the king of love and live lives that are worthy of him. Lives of love for one another, for the downtrodden, for each other, uh, looking to him to give us strength. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Father, thank you that it is a kingdom of love. Father, help us. We've talked about so many different things this morning. Father, so many areas that this affects. Father, in all that we do, whatever area of our life, Father, help us to show love. Father, may that be the controlling uh, thing in our life, Father, that the love of Christ would compel us to love one another, to care for one another. Father, we know that it's hard. Give us the strength we need to do this. Father, give us the grace that we need to repent where we haven't done this. And help us to live for you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.